Welcome fellow survivors to another episode of A Rail Tour of Post-Apocalyptic England. I'm your host and amateur exologist Richard Oliver. Last time I was kidnapped by super-powered individuals, convinced I was determined to capture them and use them to make money, but they soon realised that I wasn't some Machiavellian genius determined to squeeze every bit of potential profit out of England. I think they understood that I just don't have the determination, ambition and drive to come up with evil schemes and be a supervillain. My villainy is limited to smaller scale projects, mostly just finding ways to avoid doing heavy lifting. Still though, they had decided to attack the train as revenge for their missing comrade and an effort to make a preemptive strike as they believed the Weird Adler Company was coming for them. They had all died in the attack. Well. We never found one of them, Falvey, someone who had proven impossible to kill and had presumably escaped. The captain had decided where we were heading next. Not long after the apocalypse started, when there were still functioning governments, a think tank had been assembled, scientists, philosophers, policy experts, and they were charged with coming up with things that could stop the apocalypse. It could be new technology, new government policies, new economic systems anything and everything they could come up with. It had been known as the Haywood Institute, named after the government minister who had come up with the idea. Obviously, the institute didn't stop the apocalypse, but no one was quite sure what had happened to them, and as we were in the area, the captain thought it worth investigating. It turned out that it wasn't. The institute was a burned out husk of a building, and speaking as someone with no expertise in the subjects of fire damage or aerial bombardment, I'd say the building had been firebombed from the sky. I'm not sure what the captain had hoped to find, but presumably she was disappointed. The captain is very much a realist, and I doubted she thought there was going to be some magic bullet solution to the apocalypse. And it looked like some government over, in its death rows, had ordered the institute's destruction. Wiping out a multi-billion pound research institute which contained the brightest minds of its generation did seem like an odd thing to do, but a lot of odd things happened back then. Bizarrely, the captain actually seemed relieved when she climbed back on board the train and no new orders were given about what to do next. So we waited and waited. Days went by and we all found something to do. I read and drank and then read some more. Sophia, my temporarily displaced friend, instead of reading, had taken to binge-watching television and was particularly taken with Twin Peaks and I, Claudius. Mine and Sophia's somewhat tame pursuits were rather outshone when we learned what Colt had done. He'd shot someone. Colt had taken to exploring the surrounding area and going for long walks, taking only a compass and a revolver with him. On one trip he had found a small cottage in a serious state of disrepair, but had heard noise coming from within, and venturing inside, he found a massive hole of tin food, enough to feed a person for years, as well as a heat collection of broken machinery and scientific equipment. While he inspected this odd cottage, a woman had attacked him with a knife. All she had managed to do was give him a minor cut on his arm, but instinctively he had drawn his revolver and shot her. Instantly, Colt was overcome with grief and regret. He had shot a woman armed with nothing more deadly than a penknife a woman who had been surprised to find an armed man in her home. Colt had picked up the woman and rushed her back to the train, where our train medical staff had managed to save her life. As soon as I heard the news, I rushed to see my friend, who was so overcome with guilt that he was drinking heavily, 
and not the god-awful bottled beer from North America that he normally drank, but whiskey. Admittedly some awful bourbon from Tennessee, but it was a step in the right direction. Not that I was happy to see my friend upset and using alcohol to self-medicate, but after gun control, getting called to drink a decent drink has been the issue we've talked most about. I listened to Colt explain how distraught he was and how he thought he needed to make changes. From the look of his compartment, he had only left to get food and more alcohol. He hadn't changed his clothes or seemingly been looked after himself at all. Colt's collection of firearms had been moved from the carefully curated gun racks to a couple of large boxes he kept under his bed. I stayed with him until he finally passed out from a mixture of bourbon and exhaustion. I left worried about my friend, who was never unhappy. He didn't know how to deal with these emotions. He wasn't as familiar with sadness, self-hate and melancholia as I was. I spent some time in the dining car, but a curious pall had afflicted those in there. The normal air of civilised epicureanism had been replaced by something sadder and greedier. It bothered me so much that I actually left and returned to my own carriage to work. When I looked at the pile of work that awaited me, my heart dropped. As top of the pile was a list of ideas for the show from my assistant Nux. I normally received such a list about once a week, which I usually dismissed without reading. But it had actually been nearly a month since Nox had submitted any ideas, and I had begun to hope I had finally crushed his creative spirit. Alas, it seemed that Nox was merely spending more time on his ideas, and in fairness, presenting them in a very professional way. The list had been typed, bound, and placed in an expensive-looking folder. Sighing, I picked up the list and read through it. Most of it was awful, but there were a few genuinely good ideas. Ideas that would work really well on the show. This left me in a dilemma. The podcast is very much my show. Since my producer was kidnapped by pirates in Germany, there has been virtually no one exercising any editorial control or contributing in any way other than me. And I liked it like that. I had worked hard to keep Knox out of the show. He did errands, clerical work and heavy lifting, but that was it. Would accepting his ideas mean I could eventually lose control of my show? That seemed far-fetched, but not impossible. Eventually I decided to speak to Knox about it and sound him out. Providing he didn't expect to be consulted or credited in any way, I was happy using his ideas. I found Knox in his compartment, which I had insisted was about as far away from my carriage as possible, and knocked gently on the door. From inside came the sound of someone moving quickly and clumsily through a crowded room. Things clattered to the floor and I could hear Knox talking to himself. I knocked again. The door was opened a crack and all I could see was a sliver of Knox's face. He said nothing. Knox, it's me, I said. I saw him nod, but he didn't open the door. Listen, I found your ideas for the show. Some of them are good. I think we could use them. No, said Knox quietly. I was stunned. For years he had been trying, and failing, to make a significant contribution to the show, and now he was turned down just that opportunity. Come on, I know you want to be more involved with the podcast, I said, surprised to find myself in the role of imploring Knox to be involved. Listen, I'm not interested, okay? Knox's tone had turned nasty and I was shocked. Look, open the door so we can talk properly. I pushed on the door, but it barely moved. I then heard a noise that I didn't identify at first, but clearly it activated something in my unconscious mind. It was the sound of a quiet click, perhaps metal moving against metal. I took a step back from the door. Fine, 
Have it your way, I said, and stormed off. The encounter must have stuck in my memory, as a few hours later I realised what the sound was. It was the sound of a gun cocking. I briefly entertained the idea that Knox had been ready to shoot me just for turning up at his compartment, but dismissed it as ridiculous. Correspondence, letters, emails and faxes. Okay, time to go through some of the messages I've received from listeners. First we have Dinda from Jakarta, who asks, Whatever happened to Apocalypse Industries? They used to make all sorts of great products and services at reasonable prices. Well, Dinda, a lot of us remember Apocalypse Industries fondly, who did so much to help us all. Unfortunately, their CEO and founder, Brett Kessick, was killed by mutant sharks while mountain climbing. CFO, Claudio Salatoro, was the sole fatality of a very specific volcanic eruption. And director of research, Chira Glal, was tragically hit by a car while sailing. And the rest of the board were incapacitated by dream parasites. At which point, the weird Adler company helpfully stepped in and subsumed Apocalypse Industries. If they hadn't, it is almost certain the company would have collapsed. Just another example of the largesse of the Wade Adler Company. Jared from Winnipeg has actually sent me a package as well as a letter, and while I appreciate any gifts I receive, I have mixed feelings about this. It's a gun. The letter says, Although I know your feelings on guns, after listening to several episodes where a gun would have been extremely useful to you, I thought I'd send you this. It's a smallish revolver, which I'm quite sure is very deadly. Well, thank you for the gift, Jared, but I'm afraid I won't be using it. First and foremost, I don't want to kill myself by accident with my own gun, which I'm quite sure is what would happen, and that would be an embarrassing way to die. But there are other reasons beyond my own clumsiness. I don't want to kill anyone, and I accept that that means someone might kill me. My preferred method of dealing with these situations is still to run away and I've seen numerous tense situations only made worse by guns. Perhaps most importantly, I don't want to be the sort of person who carries a gun. A person who expects danger. A person who assumes the outside world will be hostile. And admittedly, it often is. But not always. And I fear that if I carried a gun, that would change. And the outside world would indeed always be hostile. So, no guns. But thank you for thinking of me, Jared. It'll stay in my carriage and never be loaded. Finally for this week, Noah in Galway asks, Why haven't we seen the sun for three weeks? Is this a global problem? Well, Noah, it is not a global problem. From what I know, no other place on Earth is having this problem. After doing a little research, there have been a number of such incidents in the past, and frankly, none of them have ended well. It has been caused by crazy scientists, sentient clouds, once even the species of plant who took photosynthesis so seriously they sucked up all available light. My advice to you will be to leave this place at once, before some darkness worshipping cult takes over, and keep going until you find sunshine. Whatever you do, don't hang around any suspiciously big plants. I spent an uneasy night locked away in my carriage. Unsettled by my concerns about Knox and worried about court, which inevitably led to heavy drinking. I woke up with something I rarely suffer from, a hangover. A drinking habit like mine normally protects from all but the most vicious hangovers, and that was certainly what this seemed to be. 
Unwilling to drink lots of water and simply let the hangover run its course, I got dressed and stumbled my way to the medical bay. I have made many allusions to the medical bay over the course of this podcast, and how most of the crew and passengers will avoid it in most circumstances. It is an unsettling place. Not helped by the fact that the staff rarely, if ever, leave the medical bay, implemented an almost total and voluntary quarantine from the rest of the train. Giving them a sense of mystery and suspense most people do not look for when picking their doctor. Which is not to say they are not brilliant. They are excellent doctors and nurses. The main problem is that they are almost exclusively from a research background rather than patient care. And they often seem far more concerned in studying a new plague than trying to cure it. In fact, the best way to be seen is not to have a serious problem, but an interesting problem. Which is why when many months ago I had approached them to make a hangover cure, some of them seemed amenable. I dread to think of the resources they poured into the problem of making a quick, pain-free cure for a hangover. But they did it. Dr. Lois Earnshaw delivered to me a small blue pill. Naturally, the original hangover that had inspired my request had been weeks earlier, but I threw myself into this scientific endeavour and recreated the conditions. And it worked. So now I wanted another one. My head was throbbing and it was difficult to concentrate, so I staggered down to the medical bay. The carriages that make up the medical bay are a perfect example of stark cleanliness and order. Whatever is going on, whether it's mind control and parasites burrowing into someone's brain, or a super virus that makes your chest explode, it is forced into doing things in the medical bay's way. The doctors might not be able to save you, but they will make whatever is going to kill you work for it. I waited at the airlock entrance for someone to let me in. I really didn't feel up to the decontamination procedure, but just managed to stand still while white smoke billowed around me. Eventually the door opened and I stepped through. Another unsettling thing about the medical staff is how they dress. They wear typical hospital outfits, as if designed by cutting-edge fashionistas. Everything matches, and they are stylish as they are practical, from the white coats to the face masks. Incidentally, they are always, and I do mean always, wearing face masks. I have never seen the face of any of the staff in the medical bay. Even their ID badges have photographs of them wearing masks. This is exactly the sort of thing that puts people off coming to the medical bay. I saw Dr. Earnshaw, at least I was pretty sure it was her, standing at the bedside of their only patient, the woman called had shot. Dr. Earnshaw, I said, I need your help. Mr. Oliver, said Dr. Earnshaw without looking up from the patient chart, I am rather busy and don't have time to make you a cure for a short-term malady of your own creation. I considered pretending to be offended and creating some other reason to want to speak to her, but it seemed like too much work. Come on, Doc, please. I mean, there's not much going on here, I said. Dr. Earnshaw spun round to face me, clutching the patient chart tightly in her hands, and explained that there was indeed a lot going on. The patient remained in a coma that nobody could explain. To a doctor, that was the very definition of a lot going on. To the medical bay staff, an unknown affliction was tantamount to the Black Death. If they couldn't tell what it was, then they didn't know what it could do. Before the apocalypse, this would probably have been thought of as overreacting, but now it was often a prudent course of action. 
And of course, a patient with an undiagnosed condition needed a lot of tests. In the end, through a mixture of my persistence and her medical oath, she took pity on me and decided to make me another cure. As Dr. Earnshaw set about her work, I looked down at her patient. She was a woman, I guessed to be in her mid-fifties, but it's hard to tell anymore. After all, a few years of apocalyptic living can add decades to a person. She had very short blonde hair and looked pale and gaunt. She seemed underweight and like many people had the scars and other blemishes that suggested a hard life. Didn't Colt say she was surrounded by canned food? I asked. Yes, said Dr. Earnshaw. What of it? Well, she looks very thin, I said. Dr. Earnshaw walked over and picked up her shot. Yes, hmm. Well, we've checked her for just about everything and we can't find a reason for her low weight. I dare say she was trying to ration her food. That's a good habit to get into if you're living in apocalyptic zones. Dr. Earnshaw put the chart back and returned to her work. A few seconds later she returned with a pill and a glass of water. That was quick, I said. It took time to develop, said Dr. Earnshaw. Not long to make. I knocked back the pill and waited for the symptoms to pass. Just as I did, the woman who called her shot sat bolt upright in her bed. Where am I, she asked. Dr. Earnshaw stepped forward and in a calm and reassuring manner said, Please relax. You're in our medical bay. We are looking after you. The person who shot me, where is he? She demanded. Colt, I said. You don't need to worry about him. He didn't mean to shoot you. I don't care about that, she said. He's infected. Dr. Earnshaw's eyes went wide in, I'm going to say horror rather than excitement, and she swung into action hitting a large red button on the wall behind her. Infected with what? I asked. A software update. The woman was Dr. Valeria Fedorov, a brilliant telecommunications engineer and was the last surviving member of the staff of the Hayward Institute, at least as far as she knew, and she had been surviving as best she could since the Institute had been firebombed. If you're wondering how a telecommunications engineer had survived in apocalyptic England, Federov explained that she had had something of an advantage. The Hayward Institute had been brought together to stop the apocalypse. It had everything from neuroscientists to experts on city traffic, and tried to devise an integrated response that would work across the world. Very quickly, they learned that this wasn't possible. The apocalypse was happening, and there would be no easy solution. Without telling their government overlords, the Institute changed its thinking to preserving a handful of countries, who, through favourable conditions, had the best chance to survive the apocalypse. But even this proved futile. Although they did come up with some good plans, but all of them were too late. Finally, they turned their talents to trying to help the human race survive at all. They came to the conclusion that humans, as a species, were actually quite hardy and resilient. After all, they had made their homes in extremely inhospitable conditions for thousands of years had fought against poor climates, plagues, predators, and the human race had survived them all. What was actually going to cause problems was not the human body, but the human mind. Modern humans were not mentally or psychologically equipped to deal with the apocalypse. There were any number of traits and characteristics that were needed to exist in society, but that would harm their chances of survival in the new world. But what if they made some modest changes to the human mind? What if they could weaken the traits that wouldn't help survival and promote those that would? And that's what they did. 
with one of their number, Dr. Ritvik Sewell, describing it as a software update for the human mind. The Institute knew the next few years would be difficult to survive, and that became their primary focus. They would reduce things like heroism, altruism, generosity, even pity, and increase selfishness, paranoia, and cunning. They would reduce the capacity for abstract thought and promote problem solving. The list was extensive, but in the end would result in a person best suited to survive. And then this was the really clever part. They would then delete the update. After all, these traits were about the individual surviving, which was what they needed in the short term. But when the worst was over, people would need to rebuild, and they would need all those traits again. So at some point, the update would be deleted, and the person would return to their normal self. These civilised people could put the terrible things they did to survive behind them easily. After all, it hadn't really been them, and go forward in a spirit of cooperation and teamwork. The update was programmed to delete itself when conditions had substantially improved around them. It was an intelligent update. To Fedorov, it had been deleted when she had been taken to a hospital. The Institute had planned to release it into the world when word of what they were planning had made it to their government masters. Not surprisingly, this plan caused absolute panic and horror to the powers that be, and they took swift, brutal action. A squadron of bombers was sent to destroy the Institute, reducing it to burn and rubble. Most of the Institute staff were killed, but a handful had survived the initial attack, and they knew what they had to do. They knew it was the only way they would survive. Each uploaded the software to their own mind, and hoped that it would be spread to the rest of the world. When it was explained to Fedorov that decades had passed, and as far as anyone could tell, no one else had been infected, she was shocked. When she heard that the worst of the apocalypse was over, she turned pale. They'll destroy it all, she said. The update was programmed to speed the collapse of governments. It was going to happen, so we thought the quicker the better. But now it'll destroy all the progress you've made. Wait, so if Cult has it, then surely everyone on board does, I said, and Fedorov nodded. Have you noticed any odd behaviour? asked Dr. Earnshaw. I thought about Colt's unexpected sadness. Knox refusing to let me into his compartment and possibly drawing a gun on me, and even my last visit to the dining car. The greediness with which people attack their food. Am I infected? I asked. How do you feel? asked Fedorov. Okay, but I have a hangover, I said, and suddenly realised Dr. Earnshaw's cure hadn't yet taken effect. Actually, it's just really in my head. Could be the higher part of your mind shutting down, said Fedorov. Tell me, are you a brave person? Heroic? Dr. Earnshaw burst out laughing in surprise and quickly apologised. The update has less work to do on some. You might just need some minor tweaks. Cowardice, aversion to risk, that was already there for you. You might just need to lose some of your higher brain functions. I was reeling from the news that, relatively speaking, I wasn't far removed from these ruthless sociopathic monsters, and of course, soon I'll be even more like them. What do we do? The staff of the medical bay took to this problem with relish, with Fedorov explaining how the update worked, what it did to the human brain, how it spread, and I'll admit, I understood nothing. After several hours they had gotten nowhere, with Fedorov shooting down all of the plans Dr. Earnshaw and her colleagues had suggested. So what do we do? I asked. Do? said Fedorov. There's nothing we can do. We have to kill everyone. 
This is a nuclear-powered train, right? It can't be that difficult. I tried to make valiant counter-arguments to killing everyone on board, but they all seemed a bit hollow. It was hard not to come to the conclusion that Fedorov was right. After all, what was the alternative? To let the update reach the rest of the world? We couldn't take another government collapse. But, and I admit this is very selfish, I didn't want to die, even if it meant condemning the rest of the world to permanent chaos and destruction. There are a lot of people on board, Colt for example, who wouldn't think twice about sacrificing themselves. But really, I think people should think twice about things, maybe even more times. Annoyingly, Dr. Earnshaw and her colleagues agreed with Fedorov, trust medical professionals to be selfless. The plan was quickly thought up. We would go to the reactor, cause an explosion, that was it. It wasn't a complicated plan, but it would probably work. Most of the crew and passengers were already exhibiting symptoms and would be too concerned with their own problems. I suggested some issues with the plan, like what if people had left the train, or what about the damage it would do to the environment. Fedorov said that no one would leave the train, not while there was still plentiful food on board, and Dr. Earnshaw pointed out it was unlikely that one more nuclear explosion would do too much damage, not after all the small-scale nuclear exchanges that had happened during the apocalypse. I couldn't think of another argument. It didn't help that my mind was being clouded by the software update. Fedorov, despite recovering from a gunshot wound and recently coming out of a coma, was eager to go herself, and this made sense. Having already deleted the update, she was immune. The suggestion that Dr. Earnshaw or any of the other medical staff go and venture out into the germ-full train made them go pale, so that just left me. Dr. Earnshaw suggested I could help Fedorov navigate her way through the train. On most trains, you know that if you start at one end and keep going, eventually you'll find what you're looking for, but that was not necessarily true on this train. Dr. Earnshaw assured me that she would work on a solution, one that didn't involve killing all of us, and gave me a walkie-talkie so she could contact us. Fedorov seemed a little unhappy about me accompanying her, but in the end she saw it made sense. I was pleased as it gave me another chance to try and talk Fedorov out of her plan. Dr. Earnshaw locked the door behind us and her team got to work, while Fedorov and I made our way through the train. I must have missed it earlier in the morning, but the train was quite a mess. Rubbish was piled up everywhere. I could see empty bullet cases and even blood. Fedorov fiercely led the way with occasional pointers from me. We encountered very few people, and those we did quickly scurried away. As we passed locked compartments, we could hear sounds from inside, but never investigated. We also found what could only be described as nests that had been built against walls. We reached the reactor in less than an hour, a good time considering the situation. It was unguarded and unlocked, and Fedorov seemed to forget all about me as she took a moment to familiarise herself with the controls. She seemed to know what she was doing, which perhaps wasn't surprising as she was supposed to be a world-class engineer. Maybe we shouldn't do this, I said quietly. Fedorov mumbled something back to me, clearly not paying any attention. Fedorov, listen to me, you're going to kill us all. I found myself reaching out and grabbing the handle of a large wrench, not exactly sure what I intended to do with it. I took a step forward, getting behind Fedorov, when the walkie-talkie Dr. Earnshaw had given me squawked to life. Oliver, we've got a plan. Stop Fedorov. We don't need to blow up the train. I was overjoyed. 
I dropped the wrench and put my hand on Fedorov's shoulder. Fedorov, thou suck the wrench shot. I was stopped as Fedorov hit me with her own wrench. After a number of unfortunate incidents, the Central Government Authority has asked me to comment on the rising incidents of cursed, out-of-date video and audio storage formats. Usually, the curse states that anyone who views or listens to the media will die shortly after, but there are many variations. The CGA has asked me to highlight some of the more persistent stories. First, the infamous Yakutsk experiments. This is a videotape recording of horrific experiments carried out during the early days of the apocalypse in pursuit of higher knowledge. It is said that whoever watches the tape will soon turn on their loved ones and continue the experiments. Second, the Patient Zero Interviews. A series of 10 cassette audio tapes of interviews of a woman known only as Patient Zero and a variety of different medical professionals and later government figures. The identity of Patient Zero is never revealed, nor is to reason as to why she is a patient, but clearly it is against her will. Interestingly, the tapes are numbered 1 to 12, with cassettes 4 and 9 missing. A warning at the beginning of each tape tells the listener not to skip any tapes or suffer dire consequences, and it is said no one has ever made it to the end of tape 12. There is the Tudorberg meeting, a recording on vinyl record of a meeting of a sinister organisation who discussed their evil plots, including poison and water supplies, murdering journalists, and even human sacrifice, in a calm and even cheery manner. Listeners have stated that what is most disturbing is the humanness of those involved, who tell shared jokes, ask about family members, and at one point sing happy birthday to one of the group's members. Most of the people who have listened to the record have vanished, and according to those close to them, only taken clothes, photo albums, and any glue they could find. The 8mm film of a compilation of sport events, ranging from a boxing match from the 1890s to sumo wrestling in the 1990s, is known as the Glowing Spectator film, and is said to contain a figure who appears in each clip. A slim woman wearing a plain dress who remains in black and white, even when the footage has moved to colour. Some of those who have seen the footage claim that the woman glows near the end of each clip, and in a matter of days, those people cause horrific accidents that cost them their own lives, and often others. Perhaps more sinister of all, and certainly the oldest, is the Hunton Expedition, which the viewer watches via a zoetrope. Those not familiar with a zoetrope, this is a Victorian device, a cylinder with images on the inside. Slits are cut into the side of the cylinder, and then it is spun round while a person looks through the slit and a moving image of a kind is created. Obviously the zoetrope is limited to quite simple images and can only tell a short story, but the hunting expedition is said to become longer and longer with each viewing, with more images being added, each becoming more graphic and harrowing, and slowly the viewer realises that one of the people in the images is them. Despite the horror of what they are seeing, the viewer becomes obsessed with reaching the end, and when they do, they suffer a gruesome death. The CGA does not give credence to tales of the supernatural. They do not believe in curses, demons or ghosts, and neither is yours truly. And the CGA wants to reassure the public no evidence has been found to corroborate these stories. They point to the flaw that in most of these stories, whoever listens or watches the material dies or disappears. 
So who is it who was passing on the legend? Nevertheless, the CGA has advised people to destroy any pre-DVD audio or video storage formats they encounter. After all, the fact that it has survived at all is suspicious. However, if anyone should watch or listen to any such curse analogue technology, please contact your local department of unexplained ephemera. I woke a little while later, my head throbbing worse than ever. The first thing I realised was that we were moving. I slowly sat up. Federov was at the controls and I realised the train was going at a fantastic speed. I looked around for a weapon and seeing another wrench on the other side of the carriage I slowly started crawling towards it. Don't do it, said Federov without looking back. I stopped. Don't make me regret not killing you. I'm not a murderer, but I'll do it if I have to. What are you doing? I asked. I thought you were going to destroy the train. Fedorov chuckled to herself. Oh no, I would never destroy such a beautiful piece of engineering. It's a wonderful train. I'm running it far beyond safe speed, and it's killing me to do this damage to it. Whatever was going on, it was clear that Fedorov had changed her mind on destroying the train and killing all of us, which was a relief, but I was still concerned as to what was going on. Where are we going? I asked. France, was Fedorov's response. The continent the rest of the world. But the infection is exactly what people need, said Fedorov, interrupting me. But the government is back. We don't need it. Things are getting better. The government bombed us. They tried to kill us, said Fedorov. The new update I infected caught with will bring down all government, and I doubt things will ever get better to delete the update. That's the real problem. Governments. We need individuals who can survive on their own terms. That is what my new update will do. I've been working on it for decades with what I've managed to salvage from the Institute. But you were infected yourself? No. I learned my survival skills the hard way, said Fedorov. The other survivors died, most of them quite quickly. For all our brilliance, we couldn't last in the apocalypse. It showed me the importance of our work. Tapping into the human mind. Making it better. I was stunned. Better? by making us less intelligent. Survival isn't about intelligence, said Fedorov. There are many species far better surviving than humans that have only the most basic intelligence. Ants, for example. They were right to bomb you, I said. You're mad. I slowly got to my feet and thought about what she was doing. Maybe some people would have agreed with her logic, but not me. I needed civilization. I liked civilization. I liked coffee and cinemas and public transportation. I like the collective efforts of millions organised into a functioning society. Perhaps it was just because I knew that in some dog-eat-dog world, I would be one of the first to get eaten, but I wanted to keep this society we built. I looked at the door. When we had arrived, it had been wide open, but was now securely locked, and I said before, no one is getting through that door easily. But would anyone even be trying to? The only other people with any idea what was going on were Dr. Earnshaw and her colleagues. Unfortunately for everyone, it seemed like it was up to me to try and resolve the situation. I had the feeling that a physical confrontation would not go my way. Fedorov may have been thin and older than me by a substantial margin, but she was tough. She had to be, surviving all this time. Whereas I was probably everything Fedorov thought was wrong with mankind. Weak, intellectual, and dependent on others for so much. Fedorov, 
Don't do this, please. I can't survive in the world you'll create. Maybe, said Fedorov. But you already have so much of what we put into the update. Selfishness, aversion to risk, the will to survive. After all, you were planning to stop me destroying the train. And what, possibly doom the rest of the world? The update will help you get over the initial shock. I... I, I don't want to live in the world you'll create. Even if I survive, I said desperately. The world you want, that's not living. Fedorov shrugged and went back to work. I realised that for a person who spent decades alone, each day a desperate struggle for survival, her new world didn't sound so bad. I had almost decided to make a desperate lunge at Fedorov and at least try to stop her when I heard a noise. It was the crackle of the walkie-talkie Dr. Enshaw had given me. Fedorov had placed it next to the controls. Oliver, what's going on? asked Dr. Earnshaw. Dr. Earnshaw, this is Dr. Fedorov. Mr. Oliver is not available, Fedorov said calmly. Is he dead? asked Dr. Earnshaw. No, no, of course not, said Fedorov. Mr. Oliver, please reassure the good doctor. I told Dr. Earnshaw I was fine, stoically holding back the information about the head injury Fedorov had given me. But she's lying. She's... I tried to tell Dr. Earnshaw everything in a deluge of words, but it wasn't even necessary. Fedorov interrupted me and casually explained what she was doing. When she had finished, Dr. Earnshaw asked to speak to me. Oliver, kill her. I was stunned by Dr. Earnshaw's blunt order. I've tried fighting her. She's a lot tougher than me, I told her. There was a longer pause and I could hear Dr. Earnshaw and her colleagues talking quietly. Tell me, Richard... Have you seen Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom? Yes, why, I asked. Well, do you remember when they're on the road bridge, near the end, said Dr. Earnshaw. What? And then it came to me. Oh, I think I understand. I looked for something to grab onto while Fedorov looked at me suspiciously, wondering what was going on. It was then that the control desk started emitting frantic beeps, accompanied by a yellow flashing light. Fedorov stared at the controls, not knowing what to do. I wasn't familiar with the controls, but I guessed at what the alarms meant. Dr. Earnshaw had pulled the emergency brake. Like many trains, the emergency brake doesn't automatically stop the train, and there are a variety of systems for managing someone pulling that brake. I did know on this train that an alarm went off in the engine, and the engineer had a brief delay to decide if they wanted, if they wanted to countermand the brake. This is because, at times, it might be more dangerous to stop the train. How did I know this? Because I had pulled the emergency brake once before. It had been to save the life of my friend Colt, but the captain did cheer me out over it, saying the life of one man was not worth risking the well-being of the entire train. It was entirely possible that Fedorov wouldn't know what the control panel was trying to tell her, but she did seem to know enough to crudely oper operate the train. I had to do something. I left my refuge and rushed at Fedorov, hoping to distract her long enough for the brake to kick in. I frantically tried to grab her and pull her away from the controls, but she fought me off easily and pushed me away roughly. I fell to the ground hard and watched as she picked up the same wrench she had hit me with before and started walking towards me. This was when the emergency brake activated. One of the reasons it might be unsafe to suddenly stop the train was because it was travelling at such a high speed that such an occurrence could damage a train and the track, perhaps even derail the train. And of course, coming to a sudden stop, travelling at hundreds of miles an hour, was very dangerous for everyone on board. 
The brake squealed loudly, and from the start there was the tortuous sound of metal straining. I slid into the wall and felt something break within me. Fedorov was catapulted across the room and made a painful sound and impact of her own. The carriage shook wildly and I tried to cling on to something. When we finally came to a stop, I knew I had to get up immediately and assess the situation. That it was imperative I swing into action. But instead, I lay still for 30 seconds, more concerned with the pain in my arm, which I was fairly sure was broken. Eventually I got to my feet and walked over to Fedorov and realised she wasn't going to be too much of a problem anymore. Her head had hit the wall hard, and while I would seek Dr. Earnshaw's expert medical opinion, I believed her to be dead. After a few moments I became aware of the sirens and flashing lights, and an automated, authoritative voice telling me to remain calm. The train's emergency systems had come online. I walked over to the engine control and could just make out a worrying amount of red lights and thought it best not to meddle with a nuclear reactor in an attempt to make things better. I picked up the walkie-talkie. Dr. Earnshaw, are you okay? Yes, we're still here, came her perfectly calm voice. I'm relieved to hear from you. I think I've broken my arm, I said, noticing the widening tone of my voice. We'll get down to the medical bay and we'll see what we can do about that, said Dr. Earnshaw, and I could hear how exasperated she was with me. What about the rest of the people on the train, I asked. They won't be troubling you, said Dr. Earnshaw. We pumped a powerful drug through the air filtration system. Anyone still awake won't be up to stopping you. With only a little difficulty, I managed to pull the levers to open the door to the rest of the train. Fortunately, the damage done by the emergency stop didn't seem too severe. Things were a bit of a mess, but the train itself seemed intact. While the train seemed as deserted as it had been when I walked this way with Fedorov, I did pass some unconscious people and a few barely conscious individuals, just lying still and smiling serenely. Eventually, I made it to the medical bay, and after the usual decontamination, was allowed in. A few of the staff there had, had taken injuries, but were more or less okay. Dr. Earnshaw saw to my arm, assuring me it wasn't a bad break. Once the painkiller set in, I was more concerned about the sleeve of my velvet jacket, probably an irreplaceable loss. Dr. Earnshaw pressed an oxygen mask against my face, and before I knew what I was doing, I took a deep breath and began to feel very strange. This was not oxygen. I woke a little while later, feeling very different. My head felt clear for the first time in a couple of days, and that was despite the blow from the wrench, the crash, and whatever drug it was that Dr. Earnshaw had given me. I called out quietly, and a nurse wandered over to me and picked up my chart. Mr. Oliver, he said happily. Glad you're awake. How are you feeling? I replied that I felt good. Surprisingly good. He explained that from what they could tell, the software update had been deleted from my, my mind, and indeed, everyone on board. The drug had created such a state of calm peacefulness and well-being, the update confused us with things getting substantially better in the outside world and deleted itself. Everyone on board had been treated. What drug was it? I asked. The nurse looked a little sheepish. We think it best that you don't know, but I can say it's typically more of a recreational drug that we just happened to have a large supply of on board. I opened my eyes wide in surprise, but accepted that it had worked, and realised it must have been one of the few illegal recreational drugs in existence, one of those developed after the apocalypse, when a different sort of high was needed, when people didn't want joy or ecstasy or bursts of energy, they just wanted to feel safe and content. Anyway, you should be fine to get on with your day, said the nurse happily. I slowly got to my feet, 
Aside from some slight pain in my arm, I felt good and hurried back to my carriage to inspect the damage. Sadly, what had seemed to bear the brunt of the stop was my drinks cabinet, and a number of very fine bottles had been destroyed. My assistant Knox was already sweeping up the mess, and I remembered that the last time we had spoken, he had pulled the gun on me. I decided it was best to let this go. He wasn't himself, after all, which was the attitude just about everyone on board had decided upon. The chaos from the software update and the emergency stop had caused a few fatalities and a lot of injuries. But as fatalities were a weekly occurrence on board, it was nothing we couldn't manage. The bigger problem was the train itself. The wheels on nearly all the carriages were damaged, and a few carriages themselves needed repairs. And then there was the engine. The reactor was still working, still generating more than enough energy for us, but the actual engine had been severely damaged. Stopping when travelling at such high speed was a really bad idea. No one seemed to know how long repairs would take, so for the time being, we were stuck. We'll leave it there for this week. Hopefully we'll get the train up and running as soon as possible and get back on our journey. At the End of the Line was written and recorded by Richard Oliver. If you like the show, please subscribe and rate on iTunes. Follow the show on Twitter at PostApocPodcast. Anyone wanting to submit questions, ask for advice or make urgent pleas for help should tweet us or send an email to at the end of the line podcast at gmail.com. Today's advice is read Cormac McCarthy's The Road. It contains no useful advice, but will give you an idea of what to expect out there.